Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Chapter 17, verses 16 through 31. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there. Also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked them, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us. So we would like to know what it means. Now all of the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God, But therefore would you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor he is served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortars life and breath and all things. From the ancestors, he made all nations to inhabit the whole world. And he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed he is not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection.
Let's pray together. Gracious God, in this moment of silent reflection, still, we're anxious. We're concerned. We come to this very moment afraid or confused or perplexed, stressed. We come to this moment hopeful, joyful, anticipating what you might do or say in our lives. We come to this very moment believing, trusting, unbelieving, skeptical, cynical. Most of us a mixture of all these perspectives. Some of us remember a time when you seemed so close and now we're wondering where you went. What happened to you? Or maybe what happened to us? But however we find ourselves right now believing or unbelieving somewhere in between, help us to see that we have far more in common than we realize. On one hand, none of us has it all together. Each of us is a beautiful mess. And at the same time, you see us and know us and love us. That love is put on display in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray now that you'd open our eyes to your grace, your minds to your truth, our hearts to your love that you would awaken us to your presence and then send us out to be your very presence wherever we go. Teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, Isela, thank you for reading scripture for us today. It was Isela's first day reading scripture and we gave her a really long and difficult one. So you totally passed the test. You're hired, you're, you're welcome back. This is how we initiate all of the people we love into a ministry of the church. But this is actually the third piece of a series we've been doing. I'm not that organized, so I didn't talk about it as a series, but in my mind it was. Two weeks ago, we looked at an Old Testament passage from the prophet Jeremiah who talked about the way that the people of God are to engage in a society where they don't feel like they're at home. When God is talking to God's people in exile and you're tempted to just look after yourself, look after your own people, cloister away from the big bad city, he says, no, pray for the welfare of the city and work on its behalf because when it thrives, you will thrive. A whole new way of engaging with the city. If you missed that, you can go back and listen on the podcast. Last Sunday... We had a passage from Jesus in, in the Gospel of Matthew where he said, you are the light of the world. You're a city on the hill. You are the salt of the earth. It's your calling in your society, in your neighborhood, on your block, to be salt and light, to preserve the things that are decaying and to illuminate the things that are darkened. And today we have a passage from Acts of the Apostles where the Apostle Paul is giving this incredible selection of sermons in some of the greatest forums known to mankind. We'll get into all of that. And you see how he engages with the city of Athens. He walks around. He seeks to see it and understand it. He reads their poems. He checks out their museums. He goes to their places of worship. He says, I want to understand your story. Do you have a care and a concern for your neighbor like that? Do you have a care and concern for your city like that? Are you engaged like that? But then he can bring it out and say there's a much bigger picture, a greater story going on here. When we started Renew Church, and I figure we're always starting it. My one friend said with COVID and with the, the distancing for over a year, we have the privilege of starting the same church twice. 
But when we first started it, 2017, my goal was to meet with 300 people in this neighborhood. We didn't have a name, we didn't have a location, but I meet with 300 people and my goal was to say, tell me about your hopes, dreams, and fears. Tell me about the hopes, dreams, and fears of your neighborhood. Help us understand what a church would look like that's good news to this neighborhood and experienced as good news. I was, as the cab drivers in London would say, doing the knowledge, getting to know my city, not just from a topographical standpoint or a demographic standpoint, but from a heart experience. And that's what Paul's doing in this passage. Now, one of the things I heard most often in those conversations, and I think Paul is experiencing here, is that there's this view that, you know, it's more difficult to believe now in the resurrection of Jesus than it was back then. But here's what we learned from Paul's conversation here, is that it was every bit as difficult for the people back then to believe that Jesus was the uniquely present Son of God and that he was crucified and risen from the dead. They might not have string theory and quantum mechanics and MRI scans and all of that, but they knew when someone was dead, they stayed dead. It was just as hard for them to believe in the resurrection as it is for us. And yet, the claims of Christianity were so powerfully made, the power of Christianity was so powerfully felt because of the community that people's lives were transformed, their minds were actually changed, and the Roman Empire was never the same. See, we need to know that case that was made. We live in a skeptical culture. We have our own questions and doubts and unresolved tensions. Our friends have plenty of questions and doubts. We live in a world in which you turn on your newsfeed and you see destruction and pain and botched evacuations, and suicide bombings, Hurricane Ida, Delta variant, Haiti, and on and on. We need that same powerful case that can bring hope in the midst of despair, that can bring a powerful way forward in the midst of confusion. This is what's offered to us today. And on top of that then, as you latch on, as you receive, as you accept this resurrection faith into your life, then it asks the question, how do you engage and interact with the world around you? See, one of the most difficult things for me over the past several weeks, especially watching Haiti and Afghanistan unfold, has been not only seeing the destruction, hearing the stories, but feeling powerless to do anything about it. And one trusted friend who's a great leader said, but don't you know, you have the ability to influence your society where you are. And if everybody takes ownership of your specific location, then the whole world's transformed. And so we do pray for what's happening in Afghanistan. We do pray for Haiti. And we do seek to send relief both far and near. And we're called to own this particular place to which God has called us in terms of renewal, to be that great patchwork of renewal wherever we go. And this is what we see is that the good news of Jesus' resurrection will transform your individual worldview, but it will also completely transform the culture around you. And finally, it renews the world. First, it'll change your individual worldview. See, the only way Paul had his heart transformed, I mean, he was incredibly steady. It talks about his pedigree and his degrees and his mentors and all of that. That's not what transformed his life with God. 
The only way Paul had his heart transformed is to realize that God was speaking to his heart and then he could speak to the hearts of other people around him. And he knows his audience. We learn in verse 18 that two of the people groups in his audience were the Epicureans and the Stoics. These were two of the major philosophical groups of his time, the cultural and intellectual elites. Both of them had rejected worship and religion by and large. See, Christians experience trouble. Ever since Jesus came, walked the earth, invited a bunch of broken people to follow him, Christians have experienced famines. They've experienced plagues. They've experienced wars and natural disasters. And somehow Christians were able to do it by caring for their neighbor and trusting that God was at work in their midst, by having this resilient, buoyant hope. And if you ask them how, whether they are from 33 AD or from 2021, right now, they would say, it's because Jesus has been raised from the dead. One day he will renew and redeem all of this, and so I could be in my place right now. Totally different worldview transformation. The other thing Paul would say to this group is, you, however you find yourself, whatever your particular philosophical perspective is, whatever your particular religious affiliation is, you already know this God. You know this God already. And you don't really know him at all. You know him, but you don't know him. You see this in Verse 22, 23, Paul stood in front of the Areopagus, we'll get into that word in a minute, and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. What you worship as unknown, this I will proclaim to you. First, what he's saying is, there is no such thing as an irreligious person. It's not like the Christians and the Muslims and the Jews and, and others. Those are the religious people, but other people are atheist or agnostic and they have no faith at all. Everybody in this room and joining in online has faith in something. The question is, are you aware of what it is? Whether it's your career or relationships or entertainment or the bottle, or money, or your looks, or your appearance, or your status, or your connections, whatever it might be, are you aware of what you look to for hope, for buoyancy, for meaning? Everyone's religious. In fact, the word religion simply means re is the prefix to do again. Ligion, ligio, ligament, things that connect other things. Religion is designed to connect us to God and to one another, and all of us are trying to do that in some way. Even if your underpinning philosophy is there is no such thing as absolute truth and everybody has to discover truth for yourself, my friend, that is an absolute truth. That you then try to argue and push on other people. You are proselytizing absolute truth, saying that there's no such thing as absolute truth and you can't stand people that are evangelizing. We all do it. We say, live and let live, respect other people until someone else we can't stand is doing just the opposite and we villainize them and scapegoat them and say all sorts of nasty things about them on social media. Our hypocrisy knows no bounds. But we, there's a good impulse there, right? This impulse to know truth, this impulse to have justice. We just go about it in all sorts of broken ways. Paul says, you know this God. 
you just don't really know him at all. You act and you say with your mouth that there is no God, and yet you live as though you're groping, you're grasping, you're looking for something. In these different echoes of a voice, it's like this human experience that has these echoes that are faint. You almost can hear the original music, but you can't, and you're always longing for it. We long for it in the beauty that we seek. We long for it in the justice we pursue. It is built into the human heart to pursue justice. You do not have to spend a long time on a kindergarten playground before you hear someone say, that's not fair. We all desire it. The problem is we can't agree on what it is. Whether it's social justice or our justice system. Echoes of a voice that we long for. Relationships. Relationships are both so critical and so difficult. And the paradox is, the closer you are to the person, the harder it becomes. And the closer you are to the person, the more power you have to hurt them. If a stranger at the beach tells you you're an idiot, you brush your shoulders off and tell them to go away. If a friend says it, it hurts even more. If a parent says it, you have to go to counseling for years. The closer you are, the more power you have to wound other people. Conversely, I have to tell you, the closer you are, the more power you have to heal other people as well. Which is why healing always comes with relationship and blessing. Echoes of a voice. You know this God, but you don't know this God. All these things, especially friends who you're here and you found this to be a respectful place, you don't call yourself a Christian, you are most welcome here. But I wonder if you can locate these longings, if you can name them, and say, maybe these longings are actually driving me toward God because there's something there to be longed after. Let that push you. Let that propel you. Don't let it paralyze you. And just note the vision of God that Paul gives. In verse 24, God is ultimate. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth. God is ultimate. And then verse 27, God is intimate. So that you would search for God and perhaps grope and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. Hold that together. You can't. I can't. The mystery of the imminence of God that the God who created the cosmos and the Milky Way and the Andromeda and all of that is also closer to you and me than the air we breathe. That's hope that will change your worldview. But it will also transform the culture. You see, Paul, it says in verse 17, Paul was waiting in Athens. He was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons And this is also, you know, as a Messianic Jew, he was doing this. And also in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. And that word marketplace challenges us. Because where did Paul go with the gospel? Did he go to where Sabbath worship was taking place, where you'd find the traditionally religious people? Yes, he went to the synagogue. But he also went downtown. He took the gospel downtown. And the word marketplace in verse 17 is a weak translation. We don't have a word that would hold it all together. The English word is far too small. We picture a shopping district. But it's much more than that. The marketplace in Greek, agora, was the cultural center of the city. It was the media center. 
Before there were newspapers or TV or media or the web, where would you go to get your information? You go down to the marketplace for the heralds and the bulletins. That's where you would find out what's going on in the world. It was the financial center where there's no paper money and stock market and cryptocurrency where investors would have to go down and look at business owners face to face and choose whether they would invest in them or not. It was the heart of the economy. It was the center of the arts where artists would come together and hone their craft and perform their art. It was the intellectual center where there were no editorial pages or journals. Where do the new ideas and the politics get discussed? In the Agora. Socrates sat in the Agora. And here's what this means. To be a Christian, to understand the gospel and apply it to your life means that you will have a personal relationship with God, but it will never be private. It will never be relegated to just Sunday morning. It will never be confined only to the four walls of your home. That the resurrection power and renewal of God spills out of your life into this world wherever you go, especially to the heart of the city. The gospel will affect the way you live in every area of your life, including and especially, especially your public life in the public square. So Christian friends, let me ask you, how does your connection to God, your belief in the resurrection, propel you, steer you, guide you in public life? We get a few clues from the way that it guided Paul. He's able to say, as I noted earlier, in verse 23, he could say, for as I went through the city, I looked carefully at the objects of your worship. I found among them an altar with this inscription. Later, he's going to quote their poets. What he's saying is, I understand your culture better than you do. He is able to stand in the middle of the most influential forum. This, at the Areopagus, this would be like addressing the staff and faculty of Yale, Harvard, and Princeton, and giving a TED Talk before you know, Congress all at the same time. And he can say, I understand your culture because I know, because I care. I'm distressed about you because I see these really intelligent people about to go off a cliff and you're driving yourselves crazy. So do you know the people around you that well? Do you understand what makes the heartbeat of San Diego continue on? Are you involved in the lives of the people you come in contact with so well that you could repeat their worldview back to them and show them how it points toward this God who knows us and loves us and gives himself on our behalf. That is the challenge and the invitation. That's what transforms the culture. And then it doesn't just stop it. Cultural transformation, it leads to cosmic renewal. In verse 31, he ends with this huge grand finale of the fireworks show. Because God has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That, my friends, is a grand finale. We could write a whole PhD dissertation on that. I've got about four minutes to take you through it. But I can't leave you here. Because this is all about the power to change the world. In the fifth century, there was a Greek playwright named, named Aeschylus. And Aeschylus wrote 
a play, he was an Athenian dramatist, and written this play about the inauguration of the Areopagus, where Paul is speaking. And in that play, the god Apollo, as he's inaugurating the Areopagus, says, in this life, when a man dies, his blood is spilled on the ground. There is no resurrection. There is no resurrection was the mantra. There is no hope. There is no next story. There is no putting it back together. That is the story that was baked into the center of the society, that was literally poured into the foundation of the floor that Paul is speaking on. Resurrection was not obvious to them, and it's not obvious to us today. Resurrection is ruled out by the grounds of the Areopagus. It is ruled out by the circumstances of our modern-day experiences. It is ruled out by our own scientific post-enlightenment worldview. But Paul puts it right back in. The focal point, the epicentral event around which everything else revolves. He says, history is moving in a particular direction with divinely ordained goal in view. It matters to discern where we are in that particular story and the part that we play. But let's back up for one second because I know I lost some of you when you heard the word judge. Someone says, hold on, wait a minute. Judgment, God will judge, and that's supposed to be good news? This is what I hate about religion. This is what I hate about Christianity. And let me just say, I know some of you have experienced churches, pastors, Christians, who have claimed to be in the name of a loving God, nothing but judgmental toward you or your friends or your family. And I hear you and I see it and I apologize. I also want you to know that's not what scripture means when it uses judgment in this context. The reason judgment is good news for a city that is broken and hurting and violent is because that word actually means not that you've been naughty and now God is going to teach you a lesson. God is going to come in as the great circuit judge of all the cosmos and align everything to its original intention. He will judge things as in line with God's shalom and flourishing and peace and where it is not there, he will put it back to rights. And so judgment is good news. Now, the only problem with it, I do have to admit, is that if God's going to align the brokenness out there and do something about it, God has to do something about the brokenness in here as well. So Christians are not the ones who are always sitting on the hill waiting for God to judge those people. Christians are the first to say, God, I need your realignment in my life. The Christian word for this is repent, to turn away and to turn back toward God. That's judgment. I would also make the case judgment goes hand in hand with God's love. I remember one time one of my children went to school and someone made fun of them and it was the first time ever I wanted to go and do bad things to a real small child, never did, never would, but you wanted to. And you know why, you understand why, because I love my kid and nobody hurts him. My friends, you don't want a God who has no ability to judge. A God who can look at genocide and child abuse and suicide bombings and do nothing and not even care? Of course God cares about the brokenness in this world. And so the claim that one day he will judge it and put it all to rights is actually good news. It's also a huge claim. So where does, where does he get to back that up? And as I say sometimes, 
a check is only as good as the signature that's on the bottom of it and the bank account that's connected to it. If I write you a check for a million dollars, guess what? You don't have a million dollars. If Elon Musk writes you a check for a million dollars, you can go put a down payment on a house in this neighborhood. So when God says, I will put all things to right, he says, and here's how I'll prove it. Here's the sneak preview. Here's the first fruit. Here's the down payment. My son, Jesus Christ, took in his body on the cross all the injustice in the society. All of the things you have done to yourself and we have done to each other. All the political violence. All the wayward and misled religious violence. He took it all upon himself on the cross and allowed it to smash him to the ground. And three days later, in the empty tomb of the resurrection, on that first Easter, he showed he was risen from the dead and had power to renew even all of that. And so a Christian is able to say, I believe God will renew all things because I believe Jesus has risen from the dead. It gives you the resource to not run away from all the problems in this world, not to get run over by them, but to face them. And you know what we do? We do it together. That's why we gather on Sundays. That's why we come to this table to be nourished as we will in a moment. That's why we pray on Wednesdays on Zoom. That's why we get together in community groups in September. It's why we do Know Your Neighbor. We do it with God and we do it with each other. And as we do, your worldview's changed. The culture is transformed. In the marketplace, the agora, and the world is renewed. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that you would give us the grace now to trust this. As we know that it was just as hard for them back then to believe Jesus rose from the dead as it is for us today, these things will not take place unless you break through. And so, with all the earnestness we can bring, we simply say, we are open. Do in our lives what you will. We are listening. Speak your truth to us. We are ready. Break through. As you do, we pray that you would change our minds. You would transform our city and you would renew the world. Give us the grace to receive this, believe this, and enter in to your great mission of renewal, especially now. We pray in your name. Amen.